Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Missing in the Carolinas. Because my episodes about missing people featured on the show Unsolved Mysteries have been so popular, I decided to research people from the Carolinas whose cases have also appeared on the Investigation Discovery Network show, Disappeared. I've already put together episodes on some of the people featured on the show, so I'll just give them a brief mention and play a short clip from their episode. This week focuses on North Carolina, so be sure to return back next week to learn which South Carolina cases have also received recognition from Disappeared. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Before we get started, I wanted to share a little information about the history of the Investigation Discovery Network that I thought you might find a little interesting. According to an article I found on Mental Floss, written by Jennifer Wood, the network got its start in 1996 as Discovery Civilization, a network dedicated to showcasing content relating to ancient history. A few years later, in 2002, the New York Times purchased a 50% stake in the network with the hopes that it could shift a bit of its focus more towards current events. But in 2006, the newspaper sold that stake in the network. The network then decided to become a 24-hour true crime network and turn itself into the investigation discovery channel that we all know and love now. It first debuted on January 27, 2008, with the show Deadly Women, which still airs on the network today. The ID network consistently ranks among the top five cable networks for female viewers, particularly among the age range of 24 to 54. When asked, why are women obsessed with true crime television by Cranes, New York in 2016, Investigation Discovery Group President Henry S. Schleif said, women love exercising their great puzzle-solving skills and intuition, which is really what most of our true crime stories are about. It's an investigation. It's a mystery. And women love that. I personally tend to agree with him. The Show Disappeared is a documentary television show on the network that debuted on December 10, 2009. The show contains reenactments and interviews with law enforcement officers, investigators, and relatives connected with cases in which individuals have gone missing. Each episode focuses on a single case of either one individual or sometimes several individuals who disappeared together. The show ran for nine seasons, including a couple of different one-hour specials, but is not currently running on the network. The last few seasons can currently be found on Hulu. With that background, let's get started on the missing people from North Carolina that have been featured on the show. First, I want to talk about Jamie Fraley, who appeared in Innocence Lost on Season 4, Episode 14. Jamie was a young 22-year-old from Gastonia who had lived most of her life with bipolar disorder and anxiety, but according to friends and family, she was on a medication that was working for her 
and excited about the future. She was taking classes at Gaston Community College and living in a nearby apartment. She was also engaged at the time to a young man named Ricky Simmons Jr. They had been living together until he was arrested and charged with theft. Despite his arrest, Jamie was supportive of Ricky Jr. and stood by him while he served out his sentence. She was living alone at the apartment, but Ricky's father, Ricky Simmons Sr., lived in the same complex with his then-girlfriend. He would help drive Jamie around so she could run errands, and they often spent time together at Simmons' apartment. On the night of April 8, 2008, Jamie had been battling a stomach virus. She was so sick, she had already been to the emergency room two times in the previous 24 hours, which is what she told her mother, Kim, when they spoke on the phone that night. Her mother offered to come and pick her up, but Jamie told her she wanted to stay home because she had an appointment at the Social Security Administration office the next day she needed to go to. The next day, Kim was surprised to receive a call from her daughter's health care worker. The worker was supposed to give Jamie a ride to that appointment at the SSA, but when she arrived at the apartment, she found the door locked and no sign of Jamie. Kim later went to the apartment with one of Jamie's aunts and cousins and found Jamie's wallet, purse, keys, and ID inside. They also found a pair of shoes Jamie normally wore with the laces missing. And there were several places throughout the house where Jamie had obviously vomited. Concerned with what they found, they filed a police report. When police began investigating, they discovered Jamie had talked to another friend on the phone in the early morning hours around 2 a.m. the day she went missing. She told her friend that someone was giving her a ride to the hospital and got off the phone by saying, he's here. The friend did not know who he was and no one was ever able to uncover that bit of information. The next day, her cell phone was found tossed in the grass alongside a road not far from her apartment. Jamie's mom had continued to call it, hoping her daughter would answer the phone. And finally, a man answered it who had found it on the side of the road while doing utility work. A search of the apartment complex, including a nearby lake, turned up no leads on Jamie's whereabouts. Her mother couldn't help but be concerned. Jamie was a petite, four feet, eight inches tall, and weighed only about 90 pounds. Plus, she had been seriously ill when she went missing. Investigators checked that Ricky Simmons Jr. was still incarcerated at the time of Jamie's disappearance, so he was cleared of any potential involvement. His father was a different story. Ricky Simmons Sr. had been convicted of murdering a girlfriend in 1986 by strangulation. He was released after serving only six years in prison. He was cagey when questioned by police and made a few bizarre statements about Jamie possibly being abducted that raised red flags. When police started quietly surveilling Ricky Simmons Sr., they discovered he appeared to be stalking the girlfriend he had recently broken up with, a woman named Kim Springer. When police contacted her to alert her of his movements, she admitted he'd been violent in the past and she had obtained a restraining order against him. On June 7, 2008, Kim noticed a strange smell coming from her car. She waited a couple of days and then opened the trunk to investigate the source of the smell, only to find the dead body of Ricky Simmons Sr. there. Found with his body was a knife and several of Kim's belongings that had gone missing from her home. An autopsy showed signs of alcohol and drugs in his system, 
and that he had died of a heat stroke. Investigators speculated he must have climbed into the trunk of the car and either passed out or was unable to get out of the trunk once the temperature started to rise. His death likely saved Kim's life, but they also took away any hope for answers on what Simmons Sr. knew about Jamie's disappearance. When Jamie went missing, she was a white female with blonde hair, brown eyes, and a tattoo with the name Ricky on her ankle. Anyone with information on Jamie Fraley's whereabouts is asked to call the Gaston County Police Department in North Carolina at 704-866-3320 or Crime Stoppers at 704-861-8000. The story of Jenny Wood, Kelly Gaskins, and Irvin Williams was featured on Season 5, Episode 1 in The Road Not Taken. I shared their unusual story of a spring break trip gone wrong in episode 8 of this podcast, Missing College Students in the Carolinas. Here's a clip from it. Jenny was 19 when she went missing. She was on the dean's list at Appalachian State University, majoring in accounting. She was from a small town in North Carolina called Chacawinity, where she had grown up with a friend from high school named Kelly Gaskins. Jenny's mother said Jenny was a shy young woman whose good grades came naturally to her. Making new friends was a little harder, as Jenny was a shy girl. Her first few months away at college had been hard, but she eventually settled in and started finding people she could relate to. She still missed her best friend Kelly, though, and kept in touch with her whenever she could. Kelly and her boyfriend, Irvin Williams, had continued to live in Chacoinity while Jenny attended college, but the couple abruptly left town to go live in Texas right after Christmas in 2006. Jenny made the decision to drive from Appalachian State University to Brownsville, Texas, to visit Kelly and Irvin in March 2007 during her spring break. According to information shared in the Disappeared episode that aired on the Investigation Discovery Channel, Jenny told her mother, Tammy Wood, that Kelly and Irvin had gotten jobs at a motel in Brownsville and were also living there. Brownsville is a town in Texas that borders Matamoros, Mexico, and Jenny was excited about the possibility of crossing the border to do some shopping. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. By day, I work as a journalist and magazine editor, but I also enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests. If you like writing creative nonfiction, I encourage you to check out the Creative Nonfiction Essay Contest over at WOW Women on Writing. The mission of this contest is to inspire creative nonfiction and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally. Age is of no matter, and entries must be in English. Your story must be true, but the way you tell it is your chance to get creative. WOW is open to all styles of essay, from personal essay to lyric essay to hybrid essay and beyond. The deadline for the latest creative nonfiction contest is April 30th. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place wins $500. WOW allows a maximum of 300 entries. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. And now, let's get back to the show. 
Wilmington resident Allison Jackson Foy appeared on the show titled Last Call during Season 5, Episode 6. Her story also appeared on an episode of Dateline NBC titled Cape Fear. She was 34 years old when she went missing at the end of July 2006. At the time of her disappearance, she was the mother of two young daughters. She had grown up in New York and recently moved to Wilmington because of her husband's job prospects there. The disappeared episode focused mostly on the fact that Allison had been having problems since moving to North Carolina. She came from a big family that was very close, so it was hard being so far away from them, especially when she and her husband began having marital issues. She admitted to abusing drugs and went through a rough patch, but at the time she went missing, she had started a new job as an assistant manager at a local hotel and was feeling optimistic. But she was also spending time away from her husband and kids after work, and on the night she went missing, she met a male friend at a local hangout called the Junction Pub and Billiards. After a few drinks, the friend suspected Allison was too intoxicated to drive home, so he asked the bartender to call her a cab. Here's where things get a little interesting. The friend says he saw a cab driver poke his head in the door of the bar, and Allison grabbed her belongings and followed him out. But Allison never made it home. Her husband reported her missing to the police, and at first, after hearing about the strained relationship between the couple and Allison's previous history with drugs, they suspected she had left on her own accord. Then they wondered if her husband had anything to do with her disappearance. While her family traveled from New York to North Carolina to help search for Allison, husband Michael seemed disinterested. He also cut off service to her cell phone just a few days after she vanished. But he cooperated with police when they asked to search his house and computer. His alibi was that he had been home with the kids that night. And eventually, police honestly felt his disinterest in finding his wife stemmed more from the fact that he thought she had left on her own and not that he had caused her harm. But as time went on, there were no charges on any of Allison's credit cards or any other indication that she was living anywhere else. The police tried to find the cab driver who supposedly gave Allison a ride from the bar that night, but the cab company had no record of a driver being dispatched to that location at the time Allison left, and there were no records of a call being placed from the pub to the cab company. In April 2008, a man walking through a strip of woods just off the main road the pub sat on discovered skeletal remains. Investigators had a gut feeling the remains would belong to Allison, and the growth and debris found near the crime scene indicated these remains had probably been there for about as long as she had been missing, two years. But most disturbing to the investigators was that 10 feet away from those remains were the bones of another female a female whose remains pointed to murder. While the first set of remains was indeed identified as those of Allison Jackson Foy, the other body was identified as Angela Nobles Rothen, a 42-year-old woman with a history of drug abuse and work as a prostitute. Studying the evidence found with the two women, the police determined both were missing clothing from the waist down, indicating the possibility of sexual assault. They had also both been stabbed, Angela in the neck, and Allison had more than 40 stab wounds. This evidence led investigators to believe both women were not simply randomly killed. They likely were killed by the same perpetrator. 
The area where both Allison and Angela was found was known to be frequented by prostitutes and Johns. It was only three miles from the pub Allison had been at before she went missing. The investigation shifted into trying to figure out if a serial killer was murdering women in Wilmington. Allison's family hired a private investigator to try and pick up any leads about what had happened to the young mom. And this is where the story gets strange. The Dateline episode detailed what happened next at length, but long story short, a woman emailed the private eye, Mark Benson, and said people at the Junction Pub and Billiards were talking about how her husband must have been involved in the deaths of the two women. When Benson dug further, he realized the woman's husband, a man named Tim Iannone, had been arrested for assaulting a prostitute weeks earlier, and he drove a cab for a living. He was eventually offered a plea deal when the prostitute declined to appear in court and got served with probation instead of jail time. There was an interesting amount of circumstantial evidence against Iannone, including the fact that the place where he allegedly assaulted a local prostitute was where Allison and Angela's bodies were found. He also supposedly had his name and cell phone number on a special list at the Junction Pub and Billiards where bartenders could call him for fares that would not be reported by the cab company, basically off-the-books work. This could have explained why there was no record of a cab being dispatched to the bar that night. But despite this evidence, Iannone passed a polygraph, and police found nothing during a subsequent search of his home and cab. He was eventually cleared as a suspect in the two murders in November 2008, although Allison's family remains convinced he was involved and that she was murdered on the night she only meant to be headed home in a cab. Allison's sister, Lisa Valentino, has remained steadfast in her family's quest to get justice for their loved one. In February 2018, she asked the founders of the MVAC forensic tool to give a presentation to the Wilmington Police Department. For the past several years, the MVAC system has been used like a wet vacuum and has helped solve dozens of cold cases, most recently a 40-year-old cold case in Utah and one from 1995 in which DNA was pulled from a granite rock. According to an article I found in the Wilmington Star News, the MVAC can collect up to 200 times more DNA than swabbing. A test was done on items of Allison's clothing that were found with her remains that summer, but no conclusive results were ever released to the public. As of now, the murders of Allison Jackson Foy and Angela Rothen remain unsolved. Asheville native Zeb Quinn appeared on Season 5, Episode 15 in a show titled just a nice guy. He was one of the very first cases I profiled on episode two of this podcast. Here is a short clip for you in case you haven't already listened to it. Zeb Quinn was an 18-year-old community college student working at Walmart on Hendersonville Road in Asheville when he disappeared in early 2000. By all accounts, Zeb was simply a kind-hearted good guy. He took pride in participating in junior ROTC at T.C. Robertson High School and he enjoyed the camaraderie with his fellow co-workers at Walmart, going out of his way to do kind things for others. According to his family and friends, he had been saving up money to buy a car. On the night of January 2nd, 2000, 
Zeb finished up his shift at Walmart and met fellow co-worker, 21-year-old Jason Owens, to go look at a Mitsubishi Eclipse that was for sale. He was never seen again after that night. From the very beginning, the story Jason Owens told about that night was full of intrigue. The two men were caught on the camera of a local gas station around 9 p.m. buying sodas. You can see them drive away from the store separately, Zeb in his Mazda protege and Jason in his pickup truck. Jason claimed Zeb flashed his lights at Jason, indicating he needed to pull over at some point during the evening. Zeb told Jason he had received a page and needed to find a payphone to make a call. This was before the convenience of cell phones. Jason said he waited for Zeb to return from making that call, and that when Zeb came back, he was driving erratically and actually rear-ended Jason's truck. Zeb promised to pay for any damages, and then drove away without ever looking at the car that was for sale or explaining to Jason what was wrong. In the early morning hours of January 3rd, Jason turned up at a local hospital with head injuries and a broken rib he claimed were related to a separate car crash that happened that night. When investigators later questioned him about Zeb's disappearance, he said the accident happened outside of a local Waffle House, a few miles down the road from where he had last seen Zeb. But police couldn't find any record of an accident reported during that time and at that location. I haven't been able to find any information on whether or not the police could corroborate the story of these two accidents. A young woman named Tiara Williams from Greensboro was featured on In Broad Daylight during Season 9, Episode 7 of Disappeared. 19-year-old Tiara had spent the day of January 7, 2016, registering for classes at Guilford Technical Community College in Greensboro. She and her mother made plans to return the next day to pick up the books she would need for her classes. After spending a year working at various fast food jobs, Tiara, who was living with her grandmother, was ready to begin the study she would need to become a teacher. According to the timeline presented on the disappeared episode, Tiara had helped her mom, who lived nearby, take down their Christmas tree that evening and was watching TV with her brother and one of his friends whom she had been dating casually. At around 8.30 p.m., Tiara, who had been texting on her cell phone, told the two young men she was going to visit a friend named Travis who lived in the apartment complex. They didn't ask her any other questions and told her they'd see her later. Tiara never returned home. When her mother figured out she hadn't come back by the next morning, she grew concerned. But because of her age, police assumed she would simply return in a few days. She never did. Police were able to confirm that she did visit the friend in the complex, but according to the GPS tracker on her phone, it either died or was turned off while she was walking back home. There's a part of Tiara's timeline that confused me a bit while I watched the episode and then went back to read the newspaper accounts of Tiara's disappearance. The television show revealed that Tiara had been communicating with an ex-boyfriend on Facebook the week she went missing, and when questioned by police, he admitted he had met up with Tiara in the parking lot of the apartment complex where she lived that night. He told them she got out of the car, and he didn't know where she went after that. I don't know if this ex-boyfriend is the same person she had planned to visit when she told her brother she was leaving for a while, or someone different. According to the show, the ex-boyfriend has not been considered a person of interest 
because there's no physical evidence tying him to Tiara's disappearance at this point in time. The other young men in her life were checked out, and no one came under suspicion, including the young man she was seeing when she went missing, and another ex-boyfriend, who later died after being shot to death by his roommate. Not long after she went missing, there was a sighting called into police from a person claiming they had seen a young woman who looked just like Tiara, looking disoriented on a street in the nearby town of High Point. The lead was investigated, and it turned out to be nothing. Her family chased down several leads that came in over the next year, including one where an employee at a Waffle House in another state swore up and down that Tiara was with a group of young women and men that had been frequenting the restaurant. When her grandfather drove there himself to stake out the restaurant, it turned out not to be Tiara. Her mother strongly feels that she is alive and someone is preventing her from coming home. Tiara Williams is a black female with black hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she stood 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed about 120 pounds. She was wearing a pink shirt, a black North Face jacket, dark blue Levi's, white Jordan sneakers, with blue and green trim, and a royal blue knit cap. Anyone with information about this case is urged to contact the Greensboro Police Department at 336-482-5174 or their local authorities. There's also a Facebook page called Help Find Tiara Kasik Williams. And finally, Martin Roberts, who went missing from Boone, was featured on Breaking Away during Season 9, Episode 11. I also discussed his disappearance in Episode 8 of this podcast, Missing College Students in the Carolinas. Here's a short clip. Martin Roberts, age 19 when he went missing, was a native of Kernersville, North Carolina, who enrolled at Appalachian State University after high school graduation. He had struggled at first at college, spending more time on his social life than his grades, leaving him to take a short leave from Appalachian State. At the time of his disappearance, he was taking classes at Caldwell Community College and Technical Institute in the nearby town of Hudson, working to get his grades back up. According to friends and family, he had plans to re-enroll at Appalachian State the next semester. A female cousin was the last person to see Martin on April 21, 2016, near a bus stop on campus near the intersection of Hardin and River Streets near the ASU Convocation Center. Investigators were able to confirm the sighting later on in a surveillance camera footage. His cousin chatted with him for a few minutes, and then he walked away. She didn't get a sense anything was wrong. It was only after his father hadn't heard from him in a few days that he asked Martin's roommates to check his room. They found that his cell phone and other electronic devices were left behind, along with a note mentioning something about not being happy with the choices he'd made. Martin didn't have access to a car or bicycle, so he had to have left on foot. There were tips that he'd been seen near Trout Lake near the Blue Ridge Parkway, and that area was searched. Investigators also discovered he'd turned off the location services of his phone the day before he went missing. Martin enjoyed hiking and camping in his spare time. There are many who think Martin was depressed and decided to go off the grid, but at the time he left, he was only carrying a small backpack and wearing an Appalachian State windbreaker 
a t-shirt, khaki shorts, white sneakers, and a white golf visor. There were no indications he had any money on him. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. Don't forget to check back next week for South Carolina cases featured on Disappeared. Subscribe to the show if you don't already so you won't miss it when it drops. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. You can also find the show notes with links to more information about these cases there, too. Do you know of a missing persons case in North and South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thank you for listening.